welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by thehockeythinktank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. This is episode 100 of the Hockey Think Tank podcast, and we bring on ESPN Sports Center anchor, big time hockey supporter, and all around great guy John Butchigross. And Butchie has an amazing story that we'll get onto get that we'll get into on the podcast. And he absolutely worked his butt off to climb the ranks to get to Sports Center and work at ESPN. Uh, many of us remember him from his NHL Tonight days on ESPN with Barry Melrose, and remember the. The greatest sound in the world. He's also a huge advocate for college hockey and incredibly philanthropic with his hashtag Butchie Overtime Challenge. He came with a lot of passion on this podcast podcast episode. It was such a fun conversation that we had with him. But before we do get over to John Butchigross, let's bring on the talent of the podcast, Jeffrey Lavecchio. Vex. It's a good day today. How are we doing? I've already killed uh, two protein shakes today. I tell and it's only 1230, so it's a good day for me. Two protein shakes. What'd you have? I had uh, some ghost. I think it's just straight up chocolate at like uh, 7 a.m. I ate at 9, and then I had another shake at, <laughs> right before this. <laughs> and I think that one was the... Uh, cinnamon cinnamon toast cereal milk or whatever it's absolutely disgustingly good it is wow. so good oh yeah ghost code r-i-p-t if you want a discount what's up <laughs> <laughs> oh man dude can you believe it we're at 100 episodes i literally like insane i, I can't believe that anybody listens to us first of all <laughs> especially like we, we we're, we're probably over three hundred thousand downloads now too i would think so i mean Getting it's just close, yeah what a, what a wild ride, man. I remember the first day when you called me, you're like, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. You want to do this together? And I didn't, I didn't even listen to podcasts other than Joe Rogan. And I was like, yep. Only because it's you. And we got that uh, kind of connection and uh, I knew it would be fun. Yeah, this has been a wild ride for sure. And uh, we had some fun things that we did want to do at the beginning of the podcast and this intro here before we do get over to Bucci. And uh, I think one of the things I think the listeners would love, and we're going to get a lot of new listeners as we continue to grow uh, for sure. And uh, one of the things we want to do is we wanted to do our like almost like a David Letterman top 10 for our top 10 most uh, most listened to episodes. So I'm going to give, we'll talk for a couple seconds here. So maybe like people can guess for the people who've been listening since the beginning of who the most downloaded would be. Uh, but we've had some awesome, awesome guests. And uh, actually, before we do get to the top 10, let's talk about uh, our favorites. Do you have like a favorite one or two episodes that we've done? I mean, honestly, there's so many episodes that come to mind, but I, I'd have to say like my my favorite episodes that we've done were the first episode where you interviewed me and then the, the what was it, ninth or 10th where I interviewed you. Um, to talk about like the things I went through was kind of like uh, free therapy. I think when you interviewed <laughs> me, yeah. And then you're you're such an inspiring person, and what you've been able to do in your life and in your game in the game of hockey, both playing and coaching. And for me to kind of see that growing up and look up to you, and then to ask you questions about it, 
that was super cool to me. But then other, the ones other than with us, obviously I'd have to say, you know, Brandon Arado, Adam Nicholas, Kaner, but like, you know, the one we did with Butler after he won the cup and yeah. just the things that he talked about, I thought were so important for every player at every stage of their career to hear. But I literally can't pick a favorite though. I mean, every episode we learn something new. I learn something new. I get smarter. I get better. Um, you know, I'm just thankful to be on this thing. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> oh, wow. Coming from Tom. That's usually my line. That's no way. Okay. That is my line. Okay. That's okay. well, it's Michael Scott's line and we're related by last name. So, okay. uh, you know how it goes. Yeah, man. You? Like I think some of the funnest episodes we've had are, are the ones where like, it's a mutual friend between the two of us. So like yep. we've known whoever it was for a long time, like, like NAR and, and like Staz, um, yeah. and, and things like that. So like, you know, it's really cool. To, to be able to just kind of almost like reconnect with, with those people. Cause we're all very busy and like guys like Staz play in the NHL. <laughs> so they got a bunch of stuff going on and, and uh, so it's cool to kind of reconnect. Uh, one of my favorites was Marty St. Louis. I mean, he's my childhood idol and having the chance to talk to him about hockey uh, was something that was really, really cool. And then I think one of my favorites too, and I'm surprised actually you didn't say this when we uh, talked to our moms our mom's episode. Oh yeah. That was I, you a know really what? cool one. I think that was one of our best. That that's definitely top five for me. Top three like that. That was so good. And hockey moms make hockey happen. Like hockey would not happen without hockey moms. So yeah, that was, that was a really good one. For You're right. Sure, for sure. And then another one for me that I thought was really fun was, uh, when we, I don't actually, I don't even think you were on this one, but we interviewed my wife and Benny Sire, who I coached with at Cornell and his wife too. And we got to give everybody a little bit of a window into what like life is like as a college hockey coach, because it's not the most glamorous, <laughs> especially for the wives who, uh, you know, when we're out on the road for as, me- as much as we are, they, they kind of hold fort at home and, and do a ton of things that allow us to do what we love to do. And that was a fun one for me because Benny, you know, Benny's one of the greatest people I know and uh, just an amazing human being. And so just the f- we got to reconnect like that. The four of us was, was a lot of fun too. So uh, for all the listeners, those are some of our favorites. And uh, should we get to top 10 top 10 most listened to absolutely i'm interested to see like if you would guess the ones that we would have but um okay. i mean i would guess adam nicholas is going to be up there just because that guy i love that guy his <laughs> energy you feel his energy through your speakers when you play those podcasts <laughs> so i'm sure he's got some in there yeah okay so we have in our top 10 and i actually have a feeling that tommy nimala is the one that we just did um, from Finland. I think that one's going to be in the top 10. It's a lot more recent, so it's not quite there yet from a number standpoint, but that one's certainly going to be on there. So top 10, number 10, episode 72 with St. Lawrence head coach, Brent Brecky. So Brex coming in at number 10. That was a fun one for sure. He's my mentor uh, in the college hockey world. He's the one that gave me my first chance in, in college coaching at Miami of Ohio. Awesome, awesome guy. So he's number 10. Number nine, episode 86 with your guy, Bob Mancini. And this was Bob Mancini times two. So it was the second time we actually had him on the podcast. So that was a fun one. Uh, number eight, we have... Episode 56 with Connor Carrick. So current defenseman with the NHL's New Jersey Devils. So he was unreal. 
Yeah. And anyone out there, I just got to stop real quick. Follow that guy on Instagram. Yeah. Like I can't say this enough. Like I didn't know him before this podcast episode. And then we did the, we did the hockey think tank, uh, coaches conference thing in Chicago. And I met him there and I talked to him probably every other day right now. He is such an inspiring person. He's not unreal. only for, not only for hockey players, for anyone. He talks about mental health. He talks about exercising food. Like he's just a good person and he actually just started his own podcast last week or this week so uh give give that a listen too yep awesome awesome guy he is going to be like he's playing in the nhl making millions of dollars and he's going to be more successful when he's done with whatever he does so that was a really inspiring episode uh okay so that was episode eight i'm gonna link seven and six because it's the same person and your guy mr duncan uh adam (laughs) nicholas episode nine and adam nicholas episode 20 uh so we interviewed him twice actually we had him on a third time with brandon norado as well and so uh you got to have some thoughts on that one I just love that guy. He's got so much energy and he has so much passion and I love people with passion. Uh, he actually texted me this morning. He just got his, uh, GMBM clothing and he sent me a picture with one of those stupid, uh, filters with like women's glasses on and he was doing like a duck pouty face. (laughs) That guy just gives me energy, man. Like he's, he sent me, he's the Toronto Maple Leaf skills coach. He's the owner of stride envy. He works with the best players in the NHL and he's sending me stick handling videos to put on my training app right now for free. Like, are you kidding me? Like he could probably charge thousands of dollars for that. And he's just like, Hey, yeah, put this on your app. Like what a good dude, man. Like he just cares. And, And those podcasts, anybody who's new, listen to those because you will definitely learn about hockey coaching and teaching yep yeah big heart guys got a big heart that's for sure so episode nine and episode 20 uh you might shed a tear on this next one uh and this is a pretty recent one so for him to be in our top five is pretty amazing so episode 93 tyler parks really fifth most listened to episode that we've had yep that warms my heart. So oh, for the you people guys, that haven't listened to it, why don't you give a little bit of an intro into Parksy? If you guys want to hear why not giving up can can pay off, if you want to hear how to go about just something you're passionate about and how to, to, to win at it, to excel at it, to, to never give up no matter what anyone says, like this is the episode for you. Whether you're a hockey player or you're somebody who wants to be inspired, the things that one of my clients, uh, Tyler Parks, has gone through throughout his hockey journey – is literally insane. And he wound up playing in the, not he wound up, he, he, he earned it, but he played in the AHL this year. And it's just absolutely insane how he got there. It's a great, great story. Great episode. Give yeah. that one a listen. Yeah. You're talking about growing up with a single mom, didn't have much, uh, played, you know, high school hockey, JV high school hockey. Until As a junior. Was, yeah. Until he was 17. And you know, this is a guy that is now playing in the AHL as a goalie, or I don't know if he's now, but he, he did this year and, uh, right. just, it was, I mean, it's so cool too. I mean, episode 93, I mean, that's like a month or two ago and yeah. you know, so his, it's been really, really just kind of, kind of caught fire. And, and I, yeah, the story and, and his positivity and perseverance is a huge part of the reason why very, very cool. So, uh, that's number five. Number four is episode 63 with Martin St. Louis. Oh, 
such a, I can't believe we got him, but he really opened up towards the end of that episode, like beginning the episode. I don't think he'd ever listened to our podcast before. And he was probably like, you know, do these guys know about hockey? Who are these guys? <laughs> and then the more we talked to him, he kind of realized we're not dummies. And he <laughs> really opened up at the end and gave some unbelievable advice. That was really cool. And I know, I know it was cool for you because, you know, he's one of your heroes. Yeah. I wore 26 in college. I wore 26 in pro. Um, and he wears 26. So you can connect the dots there as to why. And so very, very because cool of for you. me. He wore 26. <laughs> yeah, you, right. right? <laughs> um, and. And I actually almost went to the University of Vermont, um, and he was a big reason why I wanted to go there and uh, didn't end up going there. Glad I didn't because I got to Cornell, um, but still, it was very, very cool to be able to to talk hockey with uh, with one of my childhood heroes, so um, very, very neat. Uh, so that's number four. Number three, we already mentioned him, episode 26, the first conversation that we had with the man Bob Mancini of USA hockey. So that was one that was really fun. And that was a good one because we kind of brought in uncle Tim to our listeners for the first time (laughs) ever. We We didn't have uncle Tim on, but we talked about uncle Tim's views versus some of Bob's and USA hockey's views and kind of going back and forth. And there was a lot of not debating, but a lot, a lot of really good points that we brought up and we kind of talked about, from one perspective, what some people see, and from another perspective, what other people see, and what USA Hockey thinks. That was, that was a really good episode. Yeah, and he was great too because, like, we challenged him on a lot of things. You know, we challenged him on a lot of things that that um, just about USA Hockey and some of the things that they've done, some of the things that they believe in, some things that we agree with, some things that we don't. And he like he did not shy away from any of the questions, which was awesome. And he really opened up and gave us a great perspective. And uh, you know, for people that are interested in the governing body of USA hockey and how it works and some, and why some of the decisions that have been made. Uh, it was a great episode, great, great episode. So, um, that was, that was a lot of fun. So that was number three, number two, episode 46 with Brian Kane of prodigy hockey. So that one was unreal. Like that was a fun episode. That one took me so long to actually, as I had to edit the crap out of this one, because, uh, we took a debate from YouTube with uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, who is kind of like the, not the author, but he's the one that kind of made the 10,000 hour rule famous. Uh, It was a debate with him and David Epstein, who's also an incredible researcher about youth sports um, and sports specialization and, you know, how to develop and all that kind of stuff. And it was a debate between the two of them that we found on YouTube. And we took little clips from that debate and then talked about it with Kaner, uh, who also has an incredible perspective on youth hockey. One of the smartest hockey guys that I know. Um, Actually, go to YouTube. Uh, I just released this we're, we're, uh, it's Thursday right now, just released our, our 10 questions with Brian Kane, where we talk about some of this other stuff on YouTube. So, um, go to that, listen to that as well. And just an awesome episode with him. And who, who does Brian Kane work for, for the listeners who don't know who does, or with, who does Brian Kane work with? I mean, he works with a ton of NHL players. Um, he does a lot of stuff with uh, guys in the Chicago area that are around. So he's working with guys all the way from like the youth to the best yeah, of but the I'm best. Saying, in, I'm saying throw the big names out there. Like so Patrick Kane. Really like Patrick Kane yeah. works with them in the summer. And um, so he Jonathan does. Tays, like he, he's got an insane, insane client list. So yeah. if you want to get inside the guy's head, 
who's getting inside of Patrick Kane's head, Jonathan Tay's head, other unbelievable NHL superstars heads and helping them like, like this is an app. Like I, I didn't even know who he was because uh, I had just retired and I, I was you know over in Europe and stuff. And, and hearing these things he's talking about, like, Oh my God, I wish I would have known you five years ago. I would have been a way better player. That was a sick episode. Yeah. That was a fun one for sure. Definitely. Definitely. And then the top episode, the top episode. Why don't you guess? I'll give you one guess. The top episode yeah. out of the last ninety nine. I literally like. I, uh, I would have thought it would have been Bob Mancini just because USA Hockey's so big, and it's not him, it's not Kane, and it's not Adam Nicholas. I lit- I can't guess. I don't know. So the most downloaded episode that we've done is when you and I talked about the power play and the penalty kill. Real that was a you know what I got so many emails DMs to my Instagram at Jeff Lavecchio what's up and <laughs> and Twitter DMs about that one and you know what's really cool is like I've actually had a lot of players from NHL down to like thirteen year old kids being like hey I tried this on that power player I tried this from that penalty kill episode and it worked like that was the coolest thing for me is yeah that was a that was a fun episode wow yeah. that's number one that's wow. number one so you and I talked for what about an hour. Or so just uh, about the power play and the penalty kill and different strategies, different concepts, different habits uh, that can make you successful on, on either one. So it's fun to talk hockey sometimes, you know, just uh, I think there's a huge part of this podcast that has made it grow because we bring on such amazing guests with such inspiring stories and stuff. But I think people do love it when we talk hockey too, and we can make some of the coaches better, some of the players better. And so as we move forward, we'll try to do a little bit more of that as well, just looking at the fact that this episode and our four check episode was very close to being in the top 10 too when the two of us talked about the four check and so um yeah it's just uh that was a fun one to do i had a lot of fun with that one actually uh especially because your hockey sense and hockey smarts are just off the chart and i i feel like you know the only reason i signed any nhl contracts and got to play in the ahl and stuff like that was because i was pretty good at penalty killing um so i think we kind of played off each other well there How, how many uh downloads were there of that episode just uh, single downloads 4, 000, to tell you around four thousand. yeah baby yeah. there we go thanks yeah. fam Love it. <laughs> and it's funny you mentioned how like when uh you and i kind of like interviewed each other when the first one when i interviewed you and then episode whatever when you interviewed me i still remember being like we were so close to like twenty thousand downloads and we thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I was like, yeah, when we get to 20,000, you can actually interview me because I didn't really want to do that. And, uh, and then just thinking about it now, how many downloads we're at and we're at 100 episodes. It's just like, you know, it's incredible. It's really cool. It is, man. I remember after we did our first one and like, we were like, oh, we got 100 downloads. We were like, what? <laughs> yeah. You know, we got 100 people listen to us. So, you know, now here we are sitting at 300,000. Like, what? It's very cool. But any new listeners, I would say like, even though our first, you know, that first episode we ever did with, with you and I, like we were a little bit raw. We didn't know what we were doing. But like, I think the first episode where you interviewed me and the episode where I interviewed you, whichever one that was, episode 10 or, you know, I don't know what it was. I think people who are new to the show should definitely go back and listen to those because it kind of gives you an insight into why we do what we do, why you have such a passion for helping people develop, why I love helping players get better. You know, it, it really gives uh, some background into the people that we are. And then you understand like why we're doing this and why we spend so much time trying to help, trying to help people. Yeah. 
people helping people. There we go. <laughs> um, you know, the other thing that we wanted to do before we head over to Bucci as well is, uh, you know, we say it at the end of pretty much every episode when I remember, <laughs> um, like we are so blessed and so appreciative of the support that we've gotten from all of you. So the people that tune in on a weekly basis, uh, the people that help us to, to get the word out, because we really do feel like this podcast, like we want it to be the go-to podcast for, you know, uh, parents and kids as you're going to the rink and away from the rink and for coaches as you're going to the rink and back home from the rink and stuff like that. And so everything that we have done, um, is for you and we really appreciate your support. And, um, you know, the biggest things that can help us again is leaving ratings and re- leaving reviews for us on Apple podcasts or, uh, iTunes or wherever get you get your, your, um, your podcasts. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to, um, we wanted to read it a few reviews. We wanted to read a few reviews, um, that you guys have given us. And, uh, you know, this just feels, as Jeff has said many times, like this fuels us to, to want to be even better ourselves, fuels us for more. So we wanted to read a few of them and these just, you know, they're amazing to get notes like this. So these are all uh, reviews that we got on uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes. The first one is from Jen Williams. Uh, She says, as a single hockey mom, navigating youth hockey over the past 10 years has been confusing at times. Sometimes I never really know who to ask or what to ask. And this show has helped me understand how the game works, both for players and parents. Always relevant and extremely positive. I look forward to each podcast. My son is currently 15, and I think that this show has helped me understand midget and junior hockey a great deal because many of us feel as though hockey is coming to an end. However, I have learned that my son has a, has more time to play and grow than I imagined. I only hope that my son continues to love the game and grow the game in his adult life, as you gentlemen have done. Thank you for providing quality content week after week. So that was a really cool one. Wow. Thanks, Glad Jen. That we're able to help. Uh, the next one is D00KES. Uh, and they say, as a parent of a hockey fanatic child with no family experience in hockey, uh, but does dating hockey players count? <laughs> I love this <laughs> podcast for the advice on how to guide my player toward the best hockey experience for him. I feel like Topher and Jeff are the newest members of my family. I can't wait until my son is old enough to listen to these podcasts on his own. The Hockey Think Tank is an awesome resource. So very, very cool to to get that feedback. Uh, the next one that I want to read is from Just Bob 15 and uh, if it's just Bob, I'm going to say he. He says, exceptional podcast reflects hockey culture at its finest. As a hockey coach, parent, and player, I find every episode useful. These are stories about life. Listening to these episodes makes me want to get better. Thanks, guys. That was really, really cool. And then the last one I want to read is from Stortz87. And Stortz says, was recently introduced to the hockey think tank by a local coach. Topher and Jeff do a great job about informing people on different aspects of hockey from youth to pro and bring on interesting guests from all around North America. They have been a big part of the culture ideas shared amongst coaches at our club and changed how a lot of people look at bettering the hockey experience for youth players in our area. Keep up the good work boys. And I wanted to read that one last because I really feel like the, the growth of this has been very, very natural. 
you know, like very organic in word of mouth and people just talking to each other about it. And uh, if you can, if for the people listening, continue to help share what we're doing here. Uh, we want to provide a resource that can help everybody in the hockey world have a better experience. And so if you can share us with your, you know, your social media groups or your organizations or whatever, uh, I think that would go a long way to help spread the positivity. And uh, we appreciate all the feedback and, and all the help that we've gotten from, from you guys over the past year and a half that we've been doing this. Yeah, man, I, I, I totally agree. I echo all those sentiments. Those, those reviews are unbelievable. And, um, you know, on days where you and I have worked all day or we're tired or whatever, and we're gonna, we have a podcast scheduled, like I read one of those reviews and it's like, bam, that's why we put so much time into this. Like we are helping people and, and it's, it's, there's no feeling like it. You know, we, it's not like we made, it's not like we're chicklets and we're making a bunch of money off this podcast. <laughs> I mean, we, we didn't even take on sponsors until over 200,000 episode uh, downloads because we wanted to keep it as pure as we possibly could and just help people for free. And, um, you know, I, it's amazing. I was in an airport one day and a guy walked up to me and he's like, are you, are you on the hockey think tank podcast? Cause he heard me talking and he recognized <laughs> my voice. And he's like, I just want to say thank you so much for everything you've done. Like help, we're, you're helping our team and, and our coaches try and think of different ways, positive ways to help these kids reach your goals. And that is all I ever need to hear to continue doing this thing until the day I die, till the wheels fall off. So I just want to say personally on episode 100 here, thank you everybody for listening to Topher and I and for taking time out of your day to, to kind of spend with us. It, it really means a lot. And we truly hope that we're helping you guys. Absolutely. And uh, we are very, very happy to bring you John Butchergrass for episode 100 because he brings the heat. He is a passionate, passionate person uh, that comes out with flying colors on the episode. Uh, before we do get to Bucci, we also want to thank our sponsors, our title sponsor, Gel Sticks, for supporting what we do. Uh, we want to thank Train Heroic, which is the app that Jeff uses to get his workouts out to the masses. And there's, what, a gazillion people now that have <laughs> that have gotten <laughs> your latest stuff that you've been putting out there. Um, so thank you to them too. And uh, again, the biggest thank you goes to all of you listeners as we were just talking about. So without further ado, episode one, zero, zero. Here's John Butchergrass. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast, all the way from right around Bristol, Connecticut, one of the biggest advocates for hockey and college hockey today, John Butchergrass. John, how are we doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Uh, honored to be a part of your excellent podcast. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Just trying to, you know, just trying to live up to your footsteps here in the in the media world. But <laughs> um, no, we're we're really excited to have you on, and and you're so passionate about the game, and Jeff and I and all our listeners are as well. And you know, typically what we do is we love to take it way back and find a little bit about your story uh, growing up. And you grew up uh, in Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh. Um, how did you fall in love with the game of hockey? Did you play it when you were growing up? Was it the Penguins? Uh, what got you really involved in the sport? Well, my dad was born and raised in South Boston, Massachusetts, uh, a sports fanatic, good athlete, uh, played goalie for Boston Latin without a mask. Uh, his team wasn't very good, so he saw, he saw a lot of shots. He was a good baseball player. When he went to the Army to pay for college, he uh, was a good semi-pro football player in Boston after uh, he got out of the Army to pay for Boston College. 
And uh, he eventually found his way to Pittsburgh. He, he got into the retail business with Sears. He was a math major. Um, and he, he, he was uh, trained to become a Sears store manager. So he went out to Pittsburgh. He probably, he and my mom probably figured they were uh, going to be there for a couple of years. And they ended up staying for, in the, in, for 30 years. Wow. So my parents, were un, my parents were unable to have children. So they adopted uh, four of us. Um, two years apart each, and I was the third of four. I was born in downtown Pittsburgh, Allegheny General Hospital, and I was adopted probably around six months of age, I believe was my age. And, um, and so I grew up with a fanatic dad, a sports fanatic dad. I was the kind of kid who was always at his dad's hip. And I always say if my, if my dad was a crack dealer, I would have grown up and been a crack dealer. <laughs> <laughs> But thankfully, he didn't deal crack, and uh, <laughs> instead he sold hammers at Sears and tractors and lawnmowers and refrigerators and washers and dryers, and, and he played slow-pitch softball, and he was a very emotional athlete, had watched sports on TV and scream at the TV, and he had season tickets for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, but what he also did when I was a young kid, he would have been, uh, when I was born, he was 34, so, uh, you know, I've grown up, he's in his late thirties, early forties, still a young, strong guy, very good softball player up until his early fifties, actually. And he would listen to Boston Bruins games on the radio because the Bruins were the biggest thing in Boston. He was just like any Boston chowderhead to, that you meet now. You know, that was my, that was my dad. He, he rooted for the Red Sox and the Celtics and the Bruins. He didn't become a Steelers fan because the Patriots were so weren't any good. And he got a, so he, he did become a big Steeler fan because he got season tickets. He loved football. It was one game a week with his buddy that he went to, uh, to the game. And, uh, so that was, that was kind of the thing he did. Uh, but you know, at that time, the Bruins were the most popular team in Boston. They were like, uh, kind of the Patriots are now and what the Red Sox wore before, uh, in 04 and kind of the, when the, when the Red Sox kind of owned the town for the first decade of this century and then kind of Brady and the Patriots kind of eclipsed the Red Sox even, even more. Uh, but that was the Bruins. That was, you know, they were popular. They were good. They had Bobby Orr. They had the best player in the game. He was hockey's Tom Brady, yeah. uh, basically. And, uh, so he was, so I would, and obviously with television, not having a lot of hockey games on, I would listen to my dad, uh, with my dad in his room and, uh, and listen to hockey games on the radio. And he would keep meticulous statistics of who scored, who assisted. So if you go out with my mom to, uh, to dinner some night, I would stay home, listen to the game and write down all the goals for him that he could put in his book. Oh, cool. And, uh, so that was already like, you know, and, and I always tell people I invented hockey in my brain because I grew up with the game on the radio. So to me, it just, I, I invented what I thought it looked like, what it sounded like. And I always compared hockey to church. I always felt it had the same kind of thing. It was kind of bloody and gory and uh, <laughs> organ an organ played music during the game and during church. And it was just as big, cathe big cathedrals of, of like church and hockey games. The arenas last night were like, but back there were big churches. So I always said that comparison. So it became very visceral to me. Hockey was visceral. It was mysterious. It was Gothic. It was bloody. It was violent. It was exciting. It was explosive. And so when you're a little kid and you have an imagination like I had, and a creativity and you tend, you tend to feel everything. I'm kind of an empath that hockey just gets in your blood and just kind of holds you hostage. That's, that's so cool. Well, let me ask you about the radio part of it because I feel like we have in our lives, like 
conversations that just stick with us for whatever reason with family members. And I remember one conversation I had with my grandma was probably 15, 20 years ago. And she was talking about how when she was growing up, very similar to what you're talking about, the radio was where you got your news and where stories were told and all that kind of stuff. And it allowed kids to have an imagination because you weren't seeing it with your eyes. It was something that you had to hear and then kind of dream up in your head of what it looked like. Um, and that's kind of like the story that you're telling right now. Is that uh, like, do you think having the ability to listen to the radio was a huge part of growing your imagination for not even necessarily just hockey like you talked about, but just kind of life in general? For sure, but especially hockey. Uh, yeah, you construct the images in your mind, and so it, it just, it, yeah, it, you run wild with it. And you know, I, you know, I would play, I would watch Peter Puck whenever they came on the, the, the rare game that was on TV. We would go to Pittsburgh a couple games a year. We would drive to Johnstown to see the Johnstown Jets play. Oh yeah, I remember there was this bench clearing brawl in the late seventies. I'll never forget this image. I, again, I'm you know I'm like a I'm like a nine-year-old kid, eight or nine-year-old kid, and, and there's and there's twenty and there's you know thirty grown men fighting at a hockey game on the ice. I'll never forget this image. There was this guy. He was probably forty, one of these defensemen. But you know, back then when you were forty, you looked like you were sixty-five today. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, the gray hair, you know, the guy was in, he, I remember he was holding this guy down on the ice. I looked at him, he looked like I was looking at my grandpa. It was like, he just seemed like he was a hundred years old. I'm thinking, what's going through that guy's mind? What did I get in my life that I'm out here fighting some kid in his twenties? So, it was, and, you know, and I would play with, I would play with, you know, the, the super jock when you, the super toe and you hit the guy's head and you would kick a field goal. Well, there was super jock hockey as well. And I would set the net up and I would hit slap shots with that. And I would, we'd play hockey in the living room using the legs of the sofa as the goal and the legs of the chair as the goal with, uh, you know, we didn't, didn't have mini sticks yet. They weren't even invented. And, um, so you had to kind of use your hand or, or any kind of instrument that could be a stick. And, and then of course, street hockey and then whatever frozen pond we could find we would skate. So I could always skate and, that was always something like when I moved on in my life through college and moving to Ohio, it's like, if you could skate, you were like an alien in the Midwest. Like <laughs> if you lived in Ohio, if you lived in Ohio, you could ice skate. You're like an alien. People didn't understand this. That's how far hockey was behind and how far it's come in the last 30, 40 years. I always say people don't realize hockey. When I was born, there were four teams in the United States. Four. Oh, yeah. when I was born. You know what oh, I mean? Oh. And two in Canada. And then eventually they expand. So I tell people, hockey, you know, baseball, they've been playing professional baseball since 1876. They've been playing professional baseball. The you know, hockey started like in 1974 in our country. You know, it's, it's way behind. So it needs time to catch up. And uh, so you, people got to realize that factor. It takes time. These cities and places don't have grandfathers who take their grandsons to games yet. You know, <laughs> it's just parents and sons. So it takes a while, and that shows you how young hockey is. And I kind of experienced that growing up, seeing how people reacted when I said I liked hockey and how little they knew. And even getting the ESPN and even people I work with now, sometimes they really don't have – understand the history and the, the concept and the narrative and the, and, they, and it, there's the sport still has a long way to go, which I like though. I, I like, it's an underdog punk rock sport and, and I enjoy seeing it grow and more and more people get involved in it. 
for sure. Well, we can tell that you enjoy it very much. I'm getting jacked up right now just hearing you talk talk about hockey stories. This is uh, this is great. Um, but you mentioned obviously you work at ESPN, and um, one of the things that we love to do on the podcast is we love to tell stories of people that had to earn their way to the top and really had to work and, and grind their way. And I have to imagine in your guys' industry in sports journalism, you're not necessarily starting at an ESPN per se. You're probably starting like a minor league hockey player in Johnstown <laughs> and then having to work your way yeah. up, you know? So t- yeah. if you can just like talk to us a little bit about your journey, where did it start? And, uh, and how hard literally did you have to work, uh, in your earlier years to earn your way to get up to, you know, the NHL tonight's and, and, and the ESPN sports center anchor positions. Well, I always loved sports. Like I said, my dad was a sports fanatic. I was at his hip. Um, I absorb things at a young age. I notice things. I, nothing gets by me. Like I said, I, I feel everything. I see everything. I would watch telecast. I would know when a, a, a sports telecast changed their graphics or their music or anything small, their camera angle. And this is when I was like seven, eight, nine, ten. Like oh, at wow. a young age, I would notice, I notice, you know, stuff like that. And so I, I'd always wanted to play, I played sports. Every, every game was life or death for me. I was ultra competitive, took it very seriously, loved it. And uh, every game was the biggest game. I just loved every minute of it. A huge fan growing up. Uh, when my team was in a playoff game, uh, my favorite team growing up, not just me, if, my, you know, if I woke up and had a game that day in high school or something, I was nauseous all day. And just like if, my, if I had a team, it was in the championship, I'd be nauseous all day. You know, I was nauseous. When I used to go to a hockey game as a kid, we'd go to Pittsburgh a couple games a year just when the Bruins came into town because I was a Bruins fan because my dad was. And uh, whenever the puck got into the Penguins' end with the Bruins, I was, I was cool, I was very relaxed. But as soon as the puck went over the red line in the Bruins side of the ice, I started to get anxious and nervous and nauseous that the Penguins might score a goal like that. Every game was like that for me. I just couldn't wait for the puck to get out and couldn't wait for the puck to get in. And then after the game passed the 10 minute mark of the second period, I started to get sad and depressed because the game was more than halfway over. I just, I, I want this. I wanted the game to last forever. I was so in the moment and I just loved every second of it. So I was, you know, going through high school. And then obviously when you realize you're probably not going to be a professional athlete, I realized, oh, man, this broadcasting thing sounds cool. But again, I had noticed stuff even when I was younger. Uh, and subconsciously, I, I was falling in love with TV and television and radio and all that stuff. So I would turn the sound down on the TV and get a tape recorder and broadcast games. I would play disc jockey because I love music. We started a street hockey team in, uh, in Ohio where I moved to when I was 11 we would play on Saturday mornings and we're all playing varsity sports in high school. So there's no way the coaches would allow this, but every morning we would get up, we'd bring a couple bucks to pay for the gym. We'd rent the gym out. We had a draft four teams. I introduced hockey to a bunch of my friends and to this day, they are hardcore fans now, but at the time they didn't know how to hold the stick. They knew nothing about the sport. So we'd play early Saturday mornings, four teams. I was the butch Bruins. And, uh, and so we're, we're, we're playing these games. It takes off. It's the highlight of our week. I start to make a newspaper, the hockey news. I'm writing articles. I got stats. I got leaders. I got all kinds of stuff. And I still have copies of those. I got four or five copies. I'd bring it on Monday. I'd I'd write all handwriting. I wrote it out in pen in flare pen. I would write it out. I copy the hockey news letters in red, 
I'd trace that and colored in red so it looked like that same old English font. I'd write articles, game stories, articles, stats, standings. I'd bring it in on Monday. It would get passed around in high school. Mike Florak would give it to Rocky Bragg. Rocky would give it to Luke, to Steve DeBartolomeo, uh, and he'd pass it around. It would make its way through the high school for two, three days, and eventually it got back to me. And I, it's amazing I still have those. And uh, so I was always kind – of, my clock, it's the old Malcolm Gladwell 10,000-hour rule kind of thing they made up. Where I, I'm, I'm writing. I'm broadcasting. I'm creating. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, and, and still playing at the same time. So then when, when college comes around, I pick a small college in Ohio, Heidelberg, where I can still play varsity sports. Um, and then also broadcast games and disc jockey, write for the school newspaper. So by the time I graduated from college, I had some pretty good reps, and I felt like I was – I was a decent candidate. And, but as far as looking for that first job, I didn't know what I was doing. This is 1988. There's no internet. I don't know anybody. And my dad's a Sears store manager. Uh, we don't have any. And, then, and we moved back to Boston the same year I graduated because that's what he always wanted to do. He retired. I moved back to Boston, uh, figured my first job would be low paying. I'd have to live at home. So and I look, so what, you know, so here I am in Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, with no roots, I don't, you know, I lived, grew up my entire life in Pennsylvania and Ohio, 11 years in each. I'm 22 years old now. So I opened up the phone book and look under yellow pages for television stations. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's, how I look for, wow. that's how I look for my first job. And I found one on Cape Cod. It was Channel 58. And I call them up, and they don't have any openings, you know, at that time. In fact, it was kind of the beginning. Of, they would only last a few more years. I'm um, not a big advertising uh, revenue, uh, community down there. And so, uh, they let me come in and work though. So I went in there about, you know, probably seven, eight months after I graduated. Um, I started there cause I, I, my parents were building the house. I was living in Boston, just working at a hotel gift shop for a few months until we moved down there. And so I started working there for free. And then they told me about this other station across town. That was this tiny cable station, eight people work there. And uh, it was just CNN headline news all day. You pressed a button, and they did this little local half-hour newscast for just the people in the middle of Cape Cod. It was a little extra cable service for those who got wow. cable. And they just did a little local news for the Cape Cod. And, and, I, I, and I dropped my tape off, and, and, she, uh, and she said, well, we got nothing now, but we'll see. And, and uh, I made the tape over at the other station. They were very nice to me. They let me go out. They let me write. They let me make packages that didn't air, but for my own practice. And I would interview players, and then they would use that sound on their newscast. And then I would use it for my own little resume tape. And, and so then she, uh, in fact, her name was Martha Cusick. She was Fred Cusick's daughter, the Hall of Fame Boston Bruins play-by-play announcer. Wow. That was my first boss. That was, and she hired me as a, be a news photographer. I could fill in doing sports when the sports guy wasn't there. I was 23 years old. That was August 23rd, 1989. And, and, that was, and then eventually he would leave a few months later, and I got to be the primary sports guy. Um, but yeah, that was 1989, August 23rd. And I lucky since that day, I haven't missed a paycheck and I had three jobs. I was there five and a half years, making 18 grand a year with a wife and two kids, uh, towards the second half. And then I got a break, uh, that, that guy who I went into and worked for free for six months who said, yeah, you can come in here and work for free if you want. He had moved on to Providence. I was going to the golf course one day and I saw his dad. I knew his dad. He goes, Hey, I just talked to Bob. He was the number two guy at Providence. He goes, Hey, the number one guy is leaving. And now Bob's the number one guy. You should give him a call. Maybe you can get his old job as the number two sports guy in Providence. And I said, okay. So I sent Bob a tape and he showed, he hand delivered it to the news director. I got the interview, went up there, got the job. 
And now I'm in the 44th biggest market going to Fenway Park on opening day. I was at the last hockey game of the Boston Guard, the last basketball game of the Boston Guard. So Providence was a great market because you kind of touched the big time. I covered the Patriots and Bill Parcells and Drew Bledsoe. So I, it was a great two years to get really kind of from doing just local Cape Cod high school stuff to, to write into that at age 28. Uh, but, you know, that first job, I was there five and a half years. Most people would move on after two or three um, and go to Manchester, New Hampshire, or Charleston, South Carolina, just another step up. And, but to me, I just, I, I was patient. I just loved doing what I was doing. I was a young dad. I always wanted to be a dad. I love my, my kids and my wife. And I, I was just so happy. I never looked at it as any kind of sentence or, or drudgery or, or even like, you know, hard work. I, I, I loved it. I never called him sick for five and a half years in that first job. I didn't call in sick in Providence. I just went every day and I loved it. And I had a lot of joy about what I was doing, even though I had no money and lived paycheck to paycheck, didn't have a savings account. Until I was 31 years old at ESPN. And, and yeah, then two years later, um, I walked into work one day at Providence. I saw an art USA today newspaper when there was an article on this guy's job at ESPN who looked at resume tapes. Again, I'm, I'm 30 years old. And I'm thinking, I thought I was five years away from being hired at ESPN. It just seems like Mount Everest to me. It's it just, this is ESPN. I mean, Chris Berman came on the air when I was 14 years old. I go, that's what I want to do right there. And, uh, you know, cause TV and cable TV is just getting going. I started by listening to games on the radio with my dad at age six, seven, eight, but now I'm 14 and there's this cable TV world exploding. And Chris Berman's talking about music and sports. And this is, that is awesome. And, uh, and so to me, working there would be like playing defenseman for the Bruins. That's not going to happen. That's like, <laughs> that's like winning the lottery. But I saw this article in the newspaper about this guy. His job is to look at tapes. So I think most people don't send a resume to Apple or Google because they're thinking, who's going to look at my resume? How, how am I going to get a job at Apple or Google? I don't know anybody. I, I, you know, that's a piece of paper. But I think, well, we're, my, my industry is different. It's actually a tape. It's actually it's actually your work. It's like a, it's like a figure skating routine here. Here's what I can do or a dance routine <laughs> or, and so, I, so I'll just send him my five minutes of my best stuff. But yeah, that's his job. Maybe he'll look at it. Maybe he won't, but at least I can send it and not feel like it's totally worthless, but still never thinking in a million years, they would call back. I just saw the article. So I sent it cause the guy's name, so I could put a name on the top and then ESPN, here's my tape. Never think in a million years there. I didn't, like I, said, I, didn't, I was confident, but I wasn't confident. I, it's kind of a weird thing. I, I thought I, was, I did a good job when I anchored Providence Sports, but I didn't, know, I didn't think I was a sports center anchor working next to Keith and Dan and Berman. But sure enough, they called three months later, come up for a tryout. You drive up there, you, you write your sports center for a 15-minute show that you kind of sit in front of a camera to do in the morning. Then you go have lunch and you come back and talk to three executives in the afternoon and you go home. It's like a nine-to-five tryout all day. And uh, I did my sports center, went to Chili's, had lunch, came back and talked to three executives. I, I, I interview really well because I have a lot of interest and I can latch on to conversations and take it somewhere when somebody says a name or where they're from or whatever. I can kind of take a conversation and go with it. And I got a lucky with some of the executives that I had uh, talked to. One was a former Boston Globe sports editor. And I just so happened to get the Boston Globe delivered to my college dorm. Uh, for, for the last two years I was there. Cause again, sports fanatic, Boston sports fanatic. And so I had the globe delivered. And like I said, I, I noticed everything from a young age. So I knew his entire roster of sports writers that he was the editor of in the eighties because I got the paper delivered to my dorm room. Oh, wow. I could have got the Philadelphia Inquirer sports editor and it wouldn't have been as good an interview, but I can talk about, Oh, I liked how he wrote. Didn't like how he wrote, Well, he's good. Where's he now? And so we had a great conversation. So when I walked out of there, 
for my nine to five tryout, I go to myself as I walk to my car, my uh, 1995 Dodge Neon. I'm like, <laughs> I knew I had the job. Like I said, they're going to hire me. Like, you know, I knew I killed it. And that was a great, I don't often feel that way. So that was a good feeling to have. And I've been there for 23 years uh, and it'll be uh, 24 years this October. That's, that's absolutely amazing, Booch. But like <laughs> you, you, you covered so much there. I have about 80 questions I wrote down. <laughs> but, you know, you, you said a couple of things about starting out of that, that first station and it was channel 58. And uh, I, I don't want to yep. say back then and make you sound older, um, but, but okay. I, you know, I was, uh, I was in training camp with the Bruins and they gave me number 57 and it was kind of like, all right, if your number is over 30, like back then, like <laughs> that's how far away you are from making the team. So when yeah, you get a right, that's 60, funny. I was 70. one number away. Right. So and, and <laughs> you, were Steve, you were, you were Stevie Hines and I was Chris Letang. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, I, and I hear you say, you know, it was channel 58 and right in my head, like, you're, you know, you're talking about being a small station and your first stepping stone. And I was just thinking like in, my head in relation to hockey like that's how far away you were from espn kind of like starting at the bottom and now you're here and you you talked you talked so much about kind of just you doing things on your own and the biggest purpose of our podcast is to help players parents and coaches find a way to get better um in a way that that is uh positive and affecting everyone in a good way, not like kind of step on each other to get better. And it sounds like you really focused on your own development. You did all these things that you just went over, you know, like starting your own magazine, handwriting it, uh, putting together your own tape, staying at a job longer than you probably had to, to learn more. Mm -hmm. Did somebody teach you that? Like, was your dad like, Hey, invest in yourself, like turn the TV off and pretend you're commentating on the game. Like who, (laughs) Cause these weren't things that were like normal when you were doing this stuff. No, not, so, yeah, no, no, I was not normal. <laughs> no, I, no. Who told you to yeah, do no, these I, things? They were just, they, they were innate. They just, like I said, my dad was emotional. He wasn't, he wasn't like, he probably wasn't the best role model that way. An amazing role model. So ethical. And my dad never swore. He, uh, just a moral upstanding, just, uh, executive, great boss, impeccable, like I said, ethics and, and morals. So uh, like I said, I'm so glad he wasn't a crack dealer and, uh, <laughs> but a very, very emotional athlete scream at the officials all the time. I was a little more pragmatic and I, I, t- I try to see the big picture and being a middle child, I was a peacemaker. Um, so I, I wanted things to be calm and happy and peaceful, but no, all that stuff was kind of innate. And, uh, I've always been a self-improver for sure. I think most athletes are, like I said, I took my little league baseball career seriously. I took my street hockey seriously. I took my, my basketball, high school basketball seriously. You know, I kind of, I was self-taught in golf. Um, I, I took up golf because that's a great game for self-improvers and people who want to get better and, and to work on technique and work on your emotions and became a pretty good player in my thirties and forties. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, that, that self, and I mean, I was always underdeveloped. I was a physical late bloomer. And so I was always trying to get stronger to, to compete athletically. I was always behind everybody um, in high school and grade school physically. So I really had to use other tools that I had to try to at least stay close. I worked hard. I used to look at bodybuilding magazines to try to get stronger. I knew I would never look like that, but I felt if I tried to look like Lee Haney and all these uh, bodybuilders from the 80s, I, I would get as strong as I could. 
I could get stronger if I if that's what I went for. If I try to get that big, I'll get as big as I can. And you know? so I, I was I always had that self improving thing. The other stuff I think was just kind of innate, lost in my own world. Um, like I said, I moved from when I was 11 years old from Pennsylvania to Ohio. That was a tough move for me. I lost all my friends. I moved. I was in a very cool, small college town, Indiana, Pennsylvania. You could ride your bike all the way around town, wiffle ball every day, go in the field, uh, other people's backyards. My new home was in this kind of a suburb, and it was kind of locked in a subdivision where a busy road is on the outside. So I felt like I was kind of locked in. And I, I didn't have any friends and, and you deal with, then you start dealing with jealous middle schoolers and uh, the evils of middle school. And that made it tough because you get people who are je- athletically jealous and, and, and you get confronted with and, and stuff like that. And it was, that was a tough move. So I kind of withdrew in my own world. And that's when I really started doing the, I, you know, the broadcasting and the disc jockey and writing, I kind of, I, I kind of withdrew and, 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 and as much as that was a negative, the positive was that all these other things kind of came out of it. And, and so that's, that's probably how that, what, what happened there and why that spawned uh, that. But yeah, I've always, I, I saw a quote when I was in college, it's a uh, chance furnishes me what I need. I'm like a man who walks down a road, stumbles over something, reaches down, picks it up. And it's exactly what I want. Huh. And that's what, when I, when I called that radio station in Cape Cod and when Bob Halloran happened to be the guy there. And then when I saw Bob's grand, I saw his dad at the golf course, walking up the golf course. And when I saw that USA Today article, these are like things I stumbled over. I reached down to pick it up and they were exactly what I wanted. Or I somehow knew it was what I wanted or what I needed. And I just kind of acted on it. I, I, I'm not, a, I, I don't act a lot on things. I like to kind of let things happen. That's the patience. That's the uh, not forcing things, just kind of letting them happen. It, it, it'll take longer. Everything takes longer with me. Like I said, I'm a physical late, I was a physical late bloomer and other things that they always take longer for me. Um, I'll start, I used to start a season maybe on the bench with a coach, you know, and I was getting frustrated because I, I put so much time into it. I worked so hard in the off season. I cared so much. And I was like, why aren't I playing? Like what, what? And then by the end of the year, the coach would realize that I was a dependable player who didn't make mistakes. And I, I remember writing an article on ESPN.com. I wrote my heart, hockey article, which I started in 2001, which became probably one of my favorite things I've ever done in, uh, at ESPN. I remember writing a, the thing, uh, a line in one of my columns saying that, you know, we all can't be great, but we can all be dependable. And then I kind of noticed recently watching those Patriots, you know, do your job documentaries on NFL network. And you know, one of Bill Belichick's big thing is as a coach is, don't make mistakes. And like, people are like, no, you can't coach that way. You can't parent that way. Uh, you can't, it, it's, it's you know, people overcomplicated sometimes or they complicated. And, and one of his thing, one way to do a good job, one way to do your job, one way to do well is just not making mistakes. Don't fumble. Like that's, that's an important thing in football was not to fumble. And so I kind of, I, I like those kinds of mantras and those kinds of ideals. Cause that can, that can, that's part of the deal. And like I said, a lot of these new age parenting or, or coaching things are like, they stay away from the negatives or whatever, but no, that's, that's a very simple ideal. Don't fumble. Don't. And, and so, and for me, it was don't turn the ball over or get the ball in play. And so by the end of the year, I'd become a very dependable player. The coach, he wouldn't take me out of the game because he knew he could count on me. And, and it just, but it always takes me longer. It takes me longer for people to see, because it looks like I don't care. It looks like I'm not trying sometimes. 
Um, and they came to ESPN. It took me a long time to get my traction. I got there in 96, but I didn't really become a regular sports center anchor until like, and with my own regular shift for about 14 years, like 2011. That's when wow. I got the noon to three shift. And that, that changed. And then people started seeing me because I was on noon to three, three hours a day. And a lot of the executives are at work and they got ESPN on. And they, I think they kind of looked at it and go, boy, that guy's pretty good. He's been here 14 years. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and that just, so it, it, just, it always takes me longer to, to kind of to, to get people's attention or to get, a tra- to, to, to get my own traction or get other people to, to see what I, what, uh, what I can, what I can do. Cause like I said, I'm not great really at anything, but I'm dependable and I try and I get, and I slowly get better. Well, I can say that I, and probably every single person around my age and maybe a little bit older are very happy that it took you longer than it did because we got to witness you <laughs> on basically something that, uh, was a huge thing in my life growing up and that's NHL tonight. So if you if you had rose the ranks even more and been on SportsCenter, maybe we wouldn't have had you as long as we did on NHL tonight. And I can remember from my childhood, like I still like I still get giddy when I hear the NHL tonight theme song. Come on. Like if somebody has it on their ringtone or their phone or now uh, on ESPN plus with the in the crease, like it's just it's such an awesome thing because like I can remember sitting and Jeff, probably you too, sitting in the living room with my dad, watching Gary Thorne and Bill Clement call a game, and then knowing that John Butchergrass and Barry Melrose were coming on right <laughs> after that for uh, for NHL tonight. So I, I would love to ask you about that. Like, what was what was doing? Like, you're a hockey fan, obviously, and what was doing that show like for you? And especially being able to work at ESPN doing hockey with Barry Melrose, who's a character as well. Um, what was your experience like doing that show? Yeah, I got hired in uh, October of 96 for really ESPN News, the 24 hours, a, ha- a sportscast every half hour, 24 hours a day, a lot like CNN headline news, which again, coincidentally, my first TV job on Cape Cod was simply, it was a local newscast, which just pressed a button and, beca- and for a half an hour went over CNN headline news and it was Cape Cod news for half an hour. So now kind of full circle. Now that's really why I got hired. That was my expansion team. ESPN news was my <laughs> expansion team because they need, you know, ESPN used to hire one or two people a year. Um, but now with this ESPN news in 96, they needed 10 to 15 people. Again, I didn't realize that at the time I'm kind of lost in my own world, lost in my day to day job of just trying to get better and, and, and getting through that day and approaching that day, I, I couldn't see the big picture. I don't see the big picture. Well, I see the little picture. Well, and so I got that. So I got in the door. So now I'm doing ESPN news. You know, occasionally they would throw you a bone. You would do a sports center. I did my first sports center, February of 97, about three months after I started with Stuart Scott. And then another year went, and I remember NHL tonight it was on the air. And I remember, I remember watching it in that spring of 97. That would have been the first year I was there. I'm thinking, man, I should do this show. Like I see the people doing the show or the people filling in doing that show. I said, geez, I should be doing this show. Like I know hockey. I know hockey history. I know who Keith Magnuson is. Okay. <laughs> when I was a kid, I had, ho- I, I had hockey books with him bleeding down the front of his face. It's one of my indelible images of my youth is Keith. He was a bleeder. He used oh, to bleed yes. like a carp when he got in fights, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so I should be, I should be doing this show, but you know, I, I never, I didn't, I've never promoted myself. Well, I don't, I, I, I never went in and talked to an executive in my 26 years there about asking about my, my place. Why don't I do this? Why don't I, like, I never did that as a player or an athlete as well. I just figured, okay, I'm not playing. And I remember 
again, in high school, every player would go in the coach's office complaining about playing time. I never did that. At ESPN, I've never gone into an office and asked about more playing time or can I do more sports centers? Can I do this? Can I do that? I figured I just got to show up and do the job that they give me. And if they want me to do sports center, they'll put me on sports center. Now, looking back, I probably should have done it more. I probably should have said, Hey, I'm good at this. I can like the hockey show, but I figured, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. I'll do my hockey highlights on ESPN news or sports center. And Oh, well, so the 97 season went around and then the following fall, it's 97, 98. And then that, so that finally that spring, I think people are starting to realize I've been there two and a half years and they hear me doing hockey highlights or maybe hear me talking about the game. They realize, well, this guy knows a little about hockey. So in the, in the spring of 98, uh, you know, NHL tonight used to go to seven days a week. So Bill Pito was the main host. And then for the two, his two days off, they would have guest hosts. And so I started filling in. Uh, those two days he was off and, um, and the crew was like, you know, really excited because I, they knew how much I loved the game. Bill used to host NHL tonight. And while they were preparing for the show during the evening, he'd be off watching the New York Knicks, <laughs> you know? So when I came in, we had, we had this bank of monitors, six TVs where we could watch all the games at once. And I was right in there screaming and yelling, this is heaven for me. So I just kind of filled in. Now, luckily, then Bill kind of asked off the show that summer because when he did those kinds of shows, NHL Tonight, RPM Tonight, whatever, you, were, you weren't on the fast track for Sports Center, which was obviously more money or more career traction or whatever. Um, so he went off Sports Center after that 97 98 season. And luckily, Barry Sachs, who was the executive in charge of all the ESPN2 shows, asked me if I want to do the show. I said, yeah, I'd love to do the show. So they named me host starting 98, 99. And that was just so awesome. I got this, I started going to the all-star games. First one was in Tampa in 99, Wayne Gretzky MVP. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was just a thrill. Cause remember this is internet video still wasn't good. It was terrible quality. So if you wanted to see a goal, if you wanted to see highlights, you had to watch NHL tonight. Yeah. It was the only nightly, it was the only nightly NHL highlight show in the world. Even Canada didn't have a hockey show every night, completely devoted to the NHL. Now TSN probably did because most of it was hockey, but, <laughs> but like, so I, 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 I can remember people in Canada getting pirated video because they want to watch NHL tonight. Cause we were on pirated. every night. We all, <laughs> Yeah, they had to steal their cable, to, you know, to to uh, to, to get NHL tonight, and so that's how you saw your highlights. And uh, I didn't really understand the impact at the time. Again, I I don't see the big picture well. I just sh- I just went in and showed up and did the show. So I'll never forget going to the All Star Game in Tampa in '99. I'm standing there, kind of in the press area and throughout different parts of the stadium. It just looks like everybody's staring at me. I, I'm saying, what is going on? <laughs> I remember looking at guys. There's, there's, I look around. Mike Madonna's like looking at me, like you know when someone's looking at you in terms of for whatever reason. But back then, it was just totally foreign to me. We're doing this little NHL Tonight show in a little small little studio. I don't know who's watching. I'm just doing it with Barry and the camera guy and the producer. I have no idea who's out there watching. And so when I get to that All Star game, just the, uh, the amount of people saying, "Man, I love the show. I love the show. I love the show." I had no idea Very that cool. was, had that kind of impact. It was it blew me away, and just that the players knew who I was, and that I'm interviewing Rocket Richard there at that All Star game, and Phil Esposito's coming up to me. This is my radio boyhood hockey, one of my heroes growing up. Phil, he was one of those mysterious guys on the radio that seemed like he was a fifty foot giant, you know. So uh, it was it was an amazing moment. All my best memories at ESPN. NHL tonight, 
hosting, uh, writing the hockey column, Frozen Four, and the World Cup in Toronto. The one I was able to do play-by-play of, of, of NHL players. The only time I've gotten to do it. Um, that does, that'll always be the biggest uh, memories for me. Uh, of my time at ESPN. They're all hockey-related. Yeah, that's unreal. Well, it's so funny that you say that, just people not really not knowing that it had such an effect because I legitimately, like, it would be a thing in my household that when we were at home and there was hockey on, like, my dad and I would watch it. And so it's uh, it's got to be, and I have to imagine that there's millions of other people around my age and their parents that feel the same way. So I don't know. It just has to be kind of cool knowing how big of an impact you had. And, and we always talk about, and it's clear you're a passionate person too. Like, we talk about the passion <laughs> for the sport. And, I, and like, you did that for a lot of us. Like you were the person that gave us our hockey, let's call it hockey fix. Um, and, and helped us to grow the passion of the game as we were going through our most formative years. And like, how, how does that make you feel? That's gotta be pretty cool, huh? Yeah. It, you know, I don't get overwhelmed by it. It is cool. I don't let it get to me or make me feel like I'm any more important. Uh, it probably is a pretty good chunk of history. Like you said, I'm the last, I'm the last kind of broadcaster or person in media that was able to touch and be a part of something before the phone came along, before internet video became really good. And before the phone came along, luckily, uh, again, if you wanted to watch highlights, you had to watch NHL tonight. That's how you got good quality highlights. Um, analysis was kind of new. When I started doing sports center, it was me and Stuart Scott for 60 minutes. You didn't see any other faces. We didn't have analysts, NBA analysts, soccer analysts, breakdown. It's a little breakdown. different now. It was just him and me. <laughs> totally different. It's now analyst driven. It's a, it's opinionated driven. You know, it's Stephen A. Smith. It's Barry Melrose. It's analysts and opinionated people. You know, with, as newspapers have died, the columnists have become TV people. And so Kornheiser, Will Bond, Stephen A., that's, so they're the stars now. Before, when I first started, it was just me and Stuart for one hour, nobody else. And so, and therefore, they be, they became kind of big. And uh, so it was just host and analyst. So very. So then we started to have analysts, but we're still there's no phone to distract people. They're not looking at their phone. They're watching NHL tonight, and they're seeing the highlights. That's where they had to see the highlights because you couldn't see the video on the computer was terrible until about 2004. And so it was great to be a part of that era. Because uh, you know, you really had to pay attention. You really had to focus. There were fewer distractions. The world was quieter. It was slower. It was kind of like what we're going through now. That's what the world was kind of like. And I kind of like that return to slowness and looking forward to things. And and uh, and the days are kind of longer. And I kind of like that. I, I live. I, I live deliberately and patiently. Like I said, I like to savor things. I'm an emotional person. That's why it attracts me to hockey. Just they're they're fun. They're they're. They're lively. They're passionate about everything. And uh, I think that was another reason why I got attracted to the sport as I age, because those are the people I kind of like to hang around. Uh, people who are funny and fun and, and, and just really enjoy life in a, in a really emotional, self-improving, crazy way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it just goes to show how much of a great marriage that 
kind of mentality is with college hockey because I feel like college hockey is very similar in that it's very emotional and people get really into it and all the things that you were just mentioning about who you are as a person. So it's almost like a natural fit. And you've been such an advocate for college hockey with the Bucci Overtime Challenge and the hashtag college hockey and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, how did you get involved in being a big part of the promotion of, of college hockey and how did you kind of fall in love with, uh, with that part of the game? Yeah, it's kind of cool. You know, that's what's great about hockey is, is I, I've all throughout my life, every step of the way, I've been introduced to a different uh, slice of the hockey pizza. You know, first it's just the NHL and on the radio and going to a game in Pittsburgh a, a couple times a year to see a game in person. And, uh, and then, you know, and then really the NHL was the only avenue of hockey. And then you start to see like the world cup in the mid nineties, then Olympic plays during miracle on ice. I was, uh, 14 years old when that happened. So that was probably my first taste of like, uh, nationalistic, uh, nationalistic kind of, uh, um, patri- patriotic type of world international hockey. That was like when I was 14. And then, uh, and then like I said, eventually NHL players get involved a little bit. And for me, when I got to Providence again, just lucky Providence, the two years I was there one year, they hosted the frozen four in Providence. So I got to, I, I'll never forget going to that doubleheader game on Thursday. And, it, and I was just blown away bands in the stands for two games on one day, people outside walk into bars in these different jerseys, even teams that weren't even at the game. There weren't all these jerseys. It was like a festival. <laughs> I was just blown. I was blown away by this. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, someone had a Brian Smolinski sweater outside, walk into a bar, you know, who is the, where are you going to find a Brian Smolinski sweater <laughs> in Providence, Rhode Island? And, uh, so I was just that. And so that was my first taste of college hockey. And it was like, so cool. And I remember being on the ice after BU won the national championship for my local channel 12. I'm interviewing Sean Bates and uh, he had a great game that day for BU. And, uh, so that was like my first taste of college hockey. That was really indelible that whole moment. And of course I go to ESPN and just really cover the NHL. And then we lose the NHL in 2004. So a couple of years later, I'm thinking, I always wanted to do play-by-play. That's what I first did when I turned the sound down on the TV and I got my tape recorder, play-by-play and listening to Bob Wilson do Bruins games on the radio or Mike Lang doing Penguin games in Pittsburgh. You know, that was the play-by-play guy and being at the arena, being at the game was really my first love. And so I, a couple of years after we lost the, uh, the NHL package, I went to the ESPN people, hey, can I do some of these – one of these regionals kind of play by play for one of these regionals. And they're like, it's probably about 2006 or seven. They go, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Awesome. So I started doing that. And after about four or five years of that, my contract happened to be up and I asked, Hey, I'd like to be voice of the frozen four. And I like to have that put in my contract. So I'm guaranteed to do it. And they said, okay. And then once that happened, I felt like, okay, I have to give this sport my full attention. If I'm going to call the national championship, I want to, I want to do it really well. You know, I would watch college hockey on television at that time. And, you know, the broadcasters weren't saying the players' names. It didn't take time to learn the players' names. They might learn two or three names. And I'm like, you know what? These athletes deserve better than that. I'm going to learn everybody's names. I want to broadcast this like it's an NHL game seven. It's the biggest thing in the world. And so I took it really seriously. And if, if, if the third, if the, you know, if the fifth and sixth defensemen, if their parents are watching the game, they're going to hear their names and I want to make sure they're going to hear their names. Very cool. And so, and that's why I started the Bucci college hockey, Bucci main rankings on Twitter. Cause that forced me to dive in and 
and kind of study the season for all these teams, understand the narrative. So by the time we got to the end of the season, the tournament, I kind of knew who was good. I knew names and, and players and what teams ups and downs were like. And so I do that. I started doing it. And I still do it for my, to, for my own personal study to, to force myself. to. I grind over that thing. To, okay. Who really is better? Who's undeserved? Who's what, well, you know, so pairwise isn't the, the, you know, the, the absolute, and all be all for what, where teams should be ranked. And so that's why I started that. And the Butcher Overtime Challenge started because on NHL tonight during the playoffs, when the game would go to overtime, our show would start after the game ended. So if it went to overtime, me, Melrose, and, and Chicken Parm Ray Ferraro would throw, $1 on, <laughs> would throw $1 on the set and pick a guy on each team. And if your guy scored, you'd swoop up the other two bucks, throw it in your pocket, and start the show. So it was just a fun little way to pass the time. And once we lost the NHL package. And then when Twitter came along, I decided oh, I'll throw this up that little game. We used to play here on Twitter just for fun. I'll retweet 10 people. Cause you know, retweeting was currency when Twitter first started, <laughs> it was high currency. Oh yeah. So, so I didn't, I couldn't, be, I couldn't believe the response. I just threw one out there and I, it started growing and growing. I said, maybe I'll start making some t-shirts and I'll give the money away to charity. And I, so I remember buying a thousand t-shirts the following year thinking, Oh my gosh, I just spent $6,000 on a thousand t-shirts. I hope I get rid of these things. But they sold so fast and quickly, and I started making hats and koozies, and all these companies are coming at me. We want to be a part of this. We want to be a part of this. I'm a broadcaster. I don't know what, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> but as it turned out, so you know, I've given away like a quarter of a million dollars to hockey charities. Um, and the, in the eight, wow. seven, eight years, I've been doing the Booji Overtime Challenge. And I started doing the college hockey stuff and that apparel. So it's been a fun little side. Kind of going back to that newspaper I used to make in high school and doing games at a tape recorder. It's, it's, that, it's that same thing. It's just kind of a little fun side thing and uh, that I do to kind of help augment people's fun and passion for the game. I want people to have a good time. I want everyone to enjoy their experience more than otherwise than they might. And maybe it adds to it a little bit. The athletes get a kick out of a guy on ESPN kind of pushing their game. Like, you know, I, no one, no national broadcaster ever shook the college hockey pom-poms before there was, there was a vacuum. I just happened to be the guy that could fill it. You know, it could have been anybody, but there was no one really did it. So that's, I think, okay, I can be that, kind of that Dick Vitale was the college basketball in the, uh, in the eighties and nineties. I could, I could you know, be that guy to kind of shake the pom-poms for the sport to give attention. This is an amazing sport with great athletes and awesome coaches. And, and it's just, uh, it's what a blessing and a gift to be a part of it. Just, it, it's made me, it's really enriched my life. That's so cool. Well, I can tell you from both of the stories that you just said. So number one, I have won a Butchie OT challenge, so I have a shirt and thank you very much for that. (laughs) And the other thing is like when I was coaching at Cornell and I was recruiting like the Butchie top 15 or top 16, um, we would like, that would be gold for us from a recruiting standpoint. It's like, it's not, who cares about the pairwise? So we would be, you know, one of the top teams. And when you would, (laughs) when you would tweet out that we were in the Butchie top 16, it was like, you, like you said, it's currency. That's it was funny. like very cool to be a part of that's, that, even from a recruiting standpoint. <laughs> that's funny you said that because this year I had a big time, a coach of a big time program contact me and said, Hey, how come we're 13 and not nine? Because <laughs> really? he said, you know, when we go recruit, he goes, the kids actually look at that stuff. Oh yeah. And I, and I was like, Whoa, I never even thought of that. Um, and, you know, and like I said, I, I look, and that's why, and I know, I, again, I take everything seriously that I do. I want things to be done well and right and interesting and fun, the whole package. I'm like a, a big crock pot of reasons why I do anything, whether I'm writing in a column or whether I'm, I'm, you know, parenting my kid or whether I'm doing the Gucci main top 15 or top 16 now. Um, 
And I was like, geez, I never thought of that. So that it was good. I heard that because, okay, make sure I do my job well. I, I can't be, you know, I can't be lobbied to change my mind. I'll believe what I believe. Um, but yeah, I, I get like, it reminds, okay, take it seriously. Make sure, okay. Are they 11 or are they nine? Where's UMass Lowell? Should they be nine or 11? So I go back and look at common opponents, who they play, who they beat. Are they hot right now? They're getting better. You know, so I I did all those things. And, uh, and so, yes, that was interesting. You say that because I heard that from a a coach this year and it caught me off guard. I I didn't, I had no idea. (laughs) That's so funny. That's so funny. It's a big deal. When it comes to youth hockey, have you heard anything about my hockey rankings? Do you know about this stuff? I don't. Oh, baby, you do. We talk about them a lot on this podcast and it's really <laughs> interesting because you, you just talked about like super in depth, how much, uh, you take pride in your rankings. And we, we have no idea. Um, I know they have algorithms for this thing, but basically it's like youth hockey ranked. How, what does it go up to Tolf? Like 200 or something or a hundred or, sure. and it's just, it's so intense and people like you just said, like college coaches and players are looking at that. Well, every youth hockey player that in America looks at these things <laughs> and they're like, Oh, we, we can't lose to the 89th team. We're the 34th team. And people just take it. They take, yeah, exactly. You're laughing about it. And you know, like they take it so seriously. And it's like, it sounds to me like you put more thought into your rankings than going to this thing that tens of thousands of people like live by. So it's, it's <laughs> right. Really, well, it's and really that, and really, and, in youth hockey, that's kind of like the, like I said, the third prong, it was NHL hockey, then college hockey. And then once my kids were, uh, obviously I was a young dad and a young, I was a dad at 26 and 28 and then, uh, and then 33. And, uh, and so having, you know, Brett, my oldest get involved with youth hockey, just as I was becoming the host of NHL tonight, they, they kind of coincided so hockey is becoming such a big part of my life that I'm starting to meet people and people are contacting me because I'm on television hosting this show. So it opened up this avenue of meeting people and just really an explosion. And then I met Jack Falla, became a pen pal of Jack Falla, a great hockey writer out of Boston and a professor at Boston University. And his book, Home Ice, really hit my heartstrings hard, building a backyard rink. So I did that. I started building a backyard rink for my kids in the year 2000. 2001 and so brett playing and then jack started playing at a very young age he started playing travel hockey at the age of six i thought it was a little young but the other parent was like he had a six-year-old son he goes come on i'll coach you can be my assistant i'm each i I go there's six is that too young for travel he goes goes, no it'll be fine and it was jack was a lot like me growing up he was ultra competitive ultra serious very coachable very pliable uh very curious uh a self-improver self-taught and so he was, it was awesome. And, uh, and just writing and that's again, I'm, and that I started writing my hockey column about that time. Uh, he started playing. And, uh, so just having NHL tonight that went into my hockey column that went into being a hockey dad. And, uh, and even though ESPN again, lost hockey in 2004, uh, eventually I got into college hockey, still had my boys through all that time playing hockey. So to me, yeah, it's about the youth hockey experience, the backyard, hockey experience, the college hockey experience, and then of course the NHL and, uh, and it all, as I said, that's the hockey pizza that I've been able to kind of get a piece of each. And so when people, some people are NHL fans and I'm a hockey fan, I love all parts of the game, the people, all different levels, all different, all different kinds of hockey. And, uh, and that, that was kind of the final piece was having my boys play and uh, being involved with that. 
I love that because something Tolf and I always talk about on this podcast is perspective and our perspective is so powerful and, and getting different perspectives will allow you to have more empathy for people in different situations, see things differently, learn things about yourself and others. So one thing we like to ask a lot of, uh, a lot of guys who, who played the game for a long time. I think we asked Marty St. Louis this when he was on the podcast, best other NHL guys and, and you being kind of somebody who's really steeped in hockey at the highest level. What's some, when your kids get in the car after a game, what are the kind of things you're saying to them? Are you the parent that's all over them? Are you the parent that's asking, or just, you know, Hey, what did you see? Hey, good job, little Johnny, no matter what, or what, what's kind of, what's the, the dynamic in the Boucher car as soon as a game ends? Well, I, the last thing I would say to Jack, when I would drop him off to a game or to practice as the guy of the car, uh, and I hope he remembers this, you know, um, at my funeral someday, <laughs> I would always say, Jack, I say, Jack, be the hardest worker and be the one having the most fun. That's what I would say. And then I would always say all the time that I, I openly communicated with, I openly communicate my feelings. I'm always in that way with most people. Like I tell people how I feel, and especially with my kids. I just, I, I just love watching you play. And, and that was so true. And I'm going to start crying if, I, if I'm not careful. <laughs> I, don't like, you know, I loved it. And, I'm, and how much I loved him. But I just loved watching him play. Cause he thought the game when another kid scored on his team, this is age six, seven, eight. Now, again, it was just in eight. He would be so happy when someone else scored like Ovechkin. That's my favorite Alex Ovechkin trait. That's how happy he is when a teammate scores and not every people, not every player is like that. They, you know, some players don't react that way when other people score, but Ovechkin is just as happy when someone else scores. And Jack was the same way. I love that about him. And um, so, yeah, I, I was, I just, and, and it was fun to talk the game. I just love talking about the game with Jack. And, when, and, the, and the couple of times I coached, I was always a little nervous coaching him. I coached him when he was six. Then I coached him again when he was a bantam. And I remember asking when he was a bantam, I go, Jack, do you like me on the bench? Because if you don't like me, I won't be there. Like, I really, you, and, he, and I remember him telling me, because oh, dad, I love it. I love that you're there. I think because, again, we thought the game and played the game very similar. Uh, you know, we fought the game. We were competitive. We both played with an edge. Like I was a kind of a, like I was an ultra competitive, kind of a chippy, dirty athlete. <laughs> and, and he had, and, and even though I was an underweight, like late blooming skinny kid, like he was, um, he was nasty. He could play that way and he had an edge. So we, we aligned emotionally very well. So it was always easy parenting Jack and it was never a problem. And it was a joy. I didn't have to wake him up. Didn't have to get him up to go to practice. He wanted me to practice early. So he was, he was just an absolute joy. So yeah, that's how, and, but coaching other kids, like the, the, the few times I was on the bench, I just, I always pointed out a little thing they did well when they came back. It was like, Logan, that was a great job how you led with your stick right there and you veered him to the corner. That was awesome. Keep doing that. And that's how I love the coach is to tell them, point out, as I told before, I'm a detail. I see little things, little things scream out at me. I don't often see the big thing, but I see the little things. And that's how I wanted to coach and for practice. You know, if I, I wish I was the head coach because I would have, I would have done practice different. I, I would have let them just gone out for the first 20 minutes and just skate around and talk and shoot the puck against the boards and just kind of trail around with the puck. Give everyone a puck for 20 minutes, just shoot around. Like in basketball, before a game, you shoot around. I would like to see them do that. And then practice for a hard 40 minutes, you know, with all your drills and your cones or whatever. But let's let them go out and just kind of talk and, and have fun and have that little joy. And so that's how I parented. That's how I coached. 
And uh, less is more. I always say as a parent, and it's true with the coach, you can mess it up more than you can help it as a parent. Uh, a lot of kids are overstructured, overparented. Um, give them some freedom. Let them debate. I wanted my kids sometimes to talk back and advocate staying out later. Or give me a reason. Let's talk about it. And if you can sell it to me, and so, then I'll, I'll agree if it's reasonable. You know? And so I, I always love that dynamic. Uh, and I love parenting. Love my kids. It was a joy. And uh, I could do it all over again. Yeah, I mean, it's so clear how much you love your kids, and and uh, I got the chance to hang out with you when you guys were looking at Miami, and and I was a uh, a volunteer there at the time, went golfing with you and Brett, and very cool to see you guys interact <laughs> there, and and uh, just some of the columns that you've written about being a hockey parent are insane, and I actually have like a <laughs> maybe I won't say, it, maybe I'll save it for the intro, but there's a there's a thing that you wrote about, uh, and everybody who's listening to this should Google it and read it. It's uh, about watching your son play his last game of hockey. And it was just like, you talk about crying and tugging at the heartstrings. Like, I don't want to make you cry on here, so maybe I won't read the passage that I have saved uh, as a picture on my phone. But I, I encourage everybody to every hockey parent, even every hockey kid to read that column because uh, it is, it, it just goes into how special a parent and a son or daughter relationship is, especially when it revolves the game around a hockey. So first of all, everybody that's listening needs to go to, uh, to, to um, read that article. But the other thing that you wrote that was a huge hit as well is your 13 simple rules for hockey parents. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm sure you got a lot of uh, feedback from that one. It was so like it was so well written and it was so spot on and so funny as well and i wanted to read a few of them on here and just get a little bit more of your thoughts because there are a lot of hockey parents that listen to this podcast and i feel like this podcast is almost a little bit of what your article was where it brings a little bit of the sanity into the insanity that could be the hockey world so if you don't mind i'd love to read a few because they're amazing Sure. All right. So the first one I want to read is, uh, is pretty funny. He goes, hockey is very, very, very difficult game to play. You're probably terrible at it. It takes high skill and a lot of courage. <laughs> so lay off your kid. Don't berate them. Be patient and encourage them to play. Um, so in, in your experiences being in hockey rinks all the time, is that something that you witnessed quite a bit um, as you were going through with, uh, with your kids' hockey careers? It's just kind of crazy parents from the stands. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I wrote that in 2000. Uh, I wrote that column in 2009. Uh, so Jack would have been 10. So I'm right in the throes of it and helping the coach uh, occasionally, not every year, but occasionally um, working nights made it tough to make practices during, during the week. So, and plus I also didn't want to be, I, I didn't want to be uh, you know, behind him every year. I let him be his own man, his own person. And I, and I can watch from afar, but yeah, that column kind of went, that was the first thing I wrote that kind of went viral. But that, that I noticed I had all these organizations. Hey, can we reprint this in our newsletter? Hey, can we hang this on our rink? Hey, can we put this here? It obviously hit a chord with a lot of people, probably a lot of coaches and organizations who dealt with the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the overbearing emotional parents. And like I said, I wasn't the kind of person who would go to a coach or go to an executive and, and self-promote. And I wasn't that way as a player. And so I also wasn't that way as a parent. If my kid wasn't playing, I figured, hey, as long as you're going to practice, I always said that my primary reason for my kids to get involved in hockey was exercise and camaraderie. That's, that's why they were playing. I used to tell parents you know, when they were that, at that age when I wrote that column was, hey, if your kid makes the high school varsity team, that's an unbelievable accomplishment. There's only 12 kids are going to play in this high school of 1,000 are going to be able to play on the high school varsity team. If your kid makes that, 
that's amazing. That should be your goal, not the NHL or college or, or even junior. If he makes the high school team, that's awesome. Go for that. Um, if anything else happens, fine. That'll, that'll kind of take care of itself and, and, and you'll get noticed. But yeah, just that, the overbearing screaming parents, it's like, it just, uh, it, it, that's what really got me to write that column and, and write that, that one line about this is a hard sport. It's difficult. I wanted my kids to do difficult things, whether it be a musical instrument or hockey, any game of skill, golf, because that's going to, that's going to, the challenge is going to make you better and more resilient if you try difficult things. And hockey is very difficult. That's why I, I think every kid should try it because it's hard and uh, you shouldn't be screaming. If you, if you, and if you don't realize how hard it is, you're not going to have any empathy and you're going to scream like that. That's <laughs> so true. That's so true. All right. I got, I got uh, one more and it's actually two different ones, but it's kind of the same things because these are like my two biggest pet peeves when I watch younger kids play hockey. Um, and the first one is your kids should be dressing themselves and tying their own skates by the second year of squirt. Jack is 67 pounds with 0% body fat and arms of linguine and he can put on <laughs> take off and tie his own skates. Like when I do clinics and stuff or camps in the summer times with younger kids and they're like peewees or squirts and they're still asking to get their skates tied i get so rattled so for all the young kids listening tie your own skates and then the other one is unless their femur is broken in 16 places mites or squirts (laughs) should not lie on the ice after a fall on the ice or against the boards attempt to get up as quickly as anyone can and slowly skate to the bench so i actually had a coach uh, i was fortunate enough to play squirt hockey for a guy named steve richmond who's the director of player development for the washington capitol right now and he was like an old school kind of guy and if somebody laid on the ice in practice like instead of going and uh and like helping the kid up he would just take cones put the cones around the kid that was laying on the ice (laughs) (laughs) and then then we would just continue on with practice as usual so i don't know if that was something that was learned at at such a young age for me but uh yeah oh man when people lay on the ice it just that gets me rattled too so i wanted to say that i appreciate uh those two things in your column as well. But for anybody that's listening, I mean, that's another great column, 13 piece of advice for, uh, for any hockey parents out there. It gives a lot of great perspective, Jeff, like you said, and, uh, Bucci, you've been through it. You've been through it at a lot of different levels. So no one better to write it than you. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't parented hard. My dad never hit me. Um, like I say, he didn't swear. He was intense and intimidating, but he was, he's always a very affectionate, very loving man. Uh, my mom would pick up the slack and she was a little harder on me, but I was coached very hard in high school. I was used to get screamed at. I was hit a couple times, never told my parents. I didn't go running to my parents. I took it. Uh, so I was coached very hard and Jack likes to be coached hard and not like I was coached like that, but he likes to be pushed. He, he likes a coach to be organized and to talk with authority and to yell. He, he didn't like any coach that wasn't organized or talked too much or just, he noticed that again, at a young age, he could see, this is not a good coach. I'm not happy. He wanted to be coached hard and firm. And so I parented, you know, I coached hard. I, I, again, I never hit my kids, never really screamed at my kids, but I had to look, I would grab them. I would get down on their level and grab their shirt and look them in the eye when something had to change. And I, I had the look, I had the parent look that every parent should get. And so my kids were great. They didn't very few problems. I had the look and I, and I was coached hard. Like the someone was on the ice. I would walk out and say, Matt, get up, <laughs> Billy, get up. 
you know, I, I could see what it was, what was going on. <laughs> Obviously, a neck, a, a, a neck injury or something, or you know, when something is when a kid is very hurt and when he's like, "You're waiting for the applause, Billy. Get up." And that's what Jack knew. Jack, Jack got up. He didn't, you know. He, he, so if I plus if he was down, I knew he was really hurt. But yeah, that was just a way to hey, come on, we can't coddle our kids. One of the worst things we can do to our for our society and for a student and for a player is to coddle them. It, it's done obviously oh, yeah. done a lot of damage. Um, so, uh, that's base. I was, uh, and I think it's, my kids have all turned out phenomenal. So happy. Um, really just ultra blessed the way they turned out. But yeah, the, the last game is the hardest. I think is the, if you Google Butchergrass and last game is the hardest, that's the one that kind of, that kind of wrapped up my column in a lot of ways, almost wrapped up, um, as being a parent was Jack's last game playing high school hockey. His team was fortunate to make it to the final four in Connecticut and play at Yale, the great barn. It was so cool that he was able to play his last real organized hockey game with uniforms and officials and the cheering crowd. You know, that's, he'll never play another game again like that. He'll play men's league and stuff. But I knew that was his last game starting at learn to skate at four playing might at age six travel hockey. This was it. This was the last big game he'd ever play. And so I poured everything I had into that, uh, that column. It took me months to write. I couldn't figure out the ending. I didn't know how I wanted to end. And I was driving to Boston to go to a Bruins game actually. And I'm driving, I'm thinking about this column a lot, most days. And it hit me how I was going to end it. And I started like well up in tears because, because I was happy I could figure out how I was going to end it. And then the story I was going to tell just really made, you know, it was just, just it, it encapsulated Jack, what he was as a boy, my experience coaching him and really all my kids as a parent, it really, I was so, I felt like, oh, someone just threw that in my brain to this is how I'm going to end this piece, which means a lot to me. And it just, uh, and so I wrote it down quickly. I wrote some notes down to make sure I didn't forget. And then that's how I ended the piece. And it, it, I was finally had the ending that I wanted to have. And then everything else just poured out after that. So yeah, those, that column is, is will go down as, you know, one of my favorite things of, uh, I've ever done. Oh man, like I'm feeling emotional just hearing you talk about it. And it was like it was it was such a well written article. And uh, yeah, again, encourage everybody to go and and uh, and read it. But uh, there's one more thing we wanted to ask you about, and that's another article that you wrote, and uh, it's uh, about Brendan Burke. And for we have talked about Berkey on this podcast before, um, but if you have if you didn't listen to that episode, Berkey was a student manager uh, at Miami of Ohio University. He was actually there the year before I got there as a graduate assistant, and uh, and Berkey unfortunately passed away in a car accident the year before I got there. And he's just one of those people, having been there the year after, that's just special, just an absolutely special human being. I never met him. I feel like I know him based upon all the. Stories stories that I've been told about him and things like that. Uh, I was there the anniversary of his death. Um, and it was one of the, you know, just most intense moments of my life being in the coach's room with Brian Burke, who was the general manager of the Toronto mm-hmm. Maple Leafs at the time. Um, uh, his kid uh, who had passed away in Berkey and just this, uh, just watching that family grieve and watching the coaches grieve and the players and all that kind of stuff. Like you really, really got a sense of how special of a human being that, that he was. Um, and you wrote an absolutely unbelievable article, just humanizing and, and putting into perspective who Berkey was and what he was able to do for the hockey world. Um, so if you can, I just wanted to ask you about that story, how you got involved with the Burke family, how that story came into your purview. And, uh, just if you can too, because you you know know about it, just talk about what kind of a special human being Berkey was as well. 
Yeah, I, Patrick Burke started to email me while he was a student at Notre Dame. Oh, wow. Uh, just talking hockey. Yeah, I, I started writing my hockey column in 2001, um, right after 9-11. That's when my column kind of started. And I, had, I told the editor, put my email address at the end of my column. So people can contact me and then eventually maybe I'll do a Q and a with questions and you know, writers didn't do that before. Some still don't do it. Um, and again, that was another thing. I couldn't believe the response to the column. I thought there was a vacuum in America at that time, 2001 for a national column to be written in a kind of a pop culture fun way covering the NHL and hockey. And uh, I just thought like, you know, again, I was, I was young. I was younger. I was 35. I said, yeah, I think I want to, I want to write a national hockey column. So again, I just started doing it. And then the, and I put my email address on it and I still get all these emails. I couldn't believe the reaction, how much people love this hockey column from Canada, all over the world. Actually I get emails from England. And it was like, wow, I can't believe this. It was all like the NHL tonight reaction when I went to the all-star game. But now with email, it, Again, as technology is growing, internet video is improving, email is becoming more prevalent. Um, people, anybody can contact you at any time from anywhere in the world. When I first did SportsCenter in 1997, uh, again, I, I got back to my, my phone by my, my uh, pod there, and it was like I had 50 e uh, phone messages from people from high school and college who, who kind of lost track of me. You know, you lost track of people back then. There wasn't Facebook and stuff. So you, people just kind of vaporized and disappeared. And then, they, <laughs> and then suddenly I, re I reappear on people's television 10 years later. It, it probably blew them away a little bit. It blew me away. But uh, so, yeah, so I put my, my email address at the end of my column. So I got all these, you know, it was fun. So I'd Corey, I mean, some people didn't like you and you had to develop a thick skin. Some people, most people were nice, but occasionally get some terrible emails. But again, I, 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 it, it thickened my skin. I can take it. It, it. it doesn't, I don't get rattled by people like that. Um, so, but yeah, I started, so I started to talk with Patrick and when he was in college and then he kind of moved up in the world. And, and eventually I went to, when I started doing the play-by-play -play of the college at the regionals and I went to Worcester one year and Miami was there. And, uh, and um, I met, I met Brendan and uh, I, you know, just, I, he was Patrick's brother and that's all I've written. I still hadn't met the dad. And so, um, and so I just really, he was a great kid. It was men for 20 minutes, really cool kid, a lot of charisma, just, uh, and, but also very just chill and just very likable kid. You know, and then, and then, and then life went on. And, um, and then a couple of years later, his, you know, his brother contacted me about that. He wanted to make this announcement and he wanted to know, he wanted to do it with ESPN to give a large platform. And I said, sure. So, uh, I'll, I'll write that. And, uh, again, this is about year eight of my column in 2009. And, um, again, at the time I didn't realize how big it would be. Didn't think it was going to be that big a deal. Uh, I do. I'll just write in this kid's story. And I was a great kid who I met the family who I liked and respected. And, and then when it happened, it came out, it was like, I couldn't believe there. Again, I, I don't see the big picture or see, ahead too well. I just worry about the task at hand. And he was a good kid, a great kid. And he wanted to tell this little hockey story. And I thought it was a, a story to tell. And, uh, yeah, the reaction was amazing. And of course, and then tragically two months later, he's killed in a car accident and they're writing that column, basically his eulogy, um, after going to the wake and the funeral, uh, and then he becomes, you know, he's this forever young kid who's 
in what could have been and just the amazing impact he would have made, but still the amazing life he had anyway. So that was an amazing two, three months of uh, just a visceral, visceral moment. Yeah, I can, I can imagine so. And, and uh, you know, being at Miami for the year after he passed and, and um, being around for everybody healing from, from that situation. I mean, it was, um, I, I don't I honestly don't even know how to put it into words. You put it much better into words in your column than I could talk about, uh, on a podcast. But one of the good things that actually came out of it, and I think it's something that we don't talk about, uh, enough in the sports world, the hockey world at all is, is what came of it with the, you can play project. And part of Berkey's story is that he came out as gay, um, which at the time, you know, this was 10 years ago now, uh, 10, 11 years ago now, um, was, was very, still is very courageous, but was very courageous at the time. Specifically, he comes from a, a big, tough hockey family and he came out as gay and, you know, his father and his family and, and everybody that supported him was so supportive of it. And, uh, and, you know, with his death, his, his brother, Patrick, uh, with some other people came up with the, you can play project, which encouraged equality for everybody, but specifically the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community, uh, in sports. And, and that's something that I know that you've been very involved with as well and have kind of picked up the torch and have helped to advocate for too. Um, so how important is that, um, part of your journey to you being able to, to kind of carry that torch a little bit now and be an advocate for the, you can play project. Yeah, you're right. It was courageous. 2009 people don't realize it was a different time. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, no one's advocating for gay marriage at all. You know, it, it's like people don't realize that even, uh, you know, democratic candidates still couldn't make that full leap yet. And, um, you know, it was, it was right around that time. So it was, it was just, it was different. Um, and so for him to do that, especially, and again, that, and that to me, that was the interesting part of the column was juxtaposing his dad's public uh, image of truculence and fighting and manliness, you know, the, 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 all those kind of cliches with this son, this uh, you know, beautiful boy of his who now decides to make this decision. And, and then at the time, of course, the column is just letting him giving this, his message juxtaposing that with his dad's public image. And then also the way Rico Blasi in Miami just um, really also just gave him that environment to do that and what they did and what those teammates did and what Rico did and what the coaching staff did was just a, just a beautiful moment of acceptance and love and humanity that really was also the, the other prong of that column was yeah. what Rico in Miami did and then, and then the ultimate instant support of his dad. There was no, like, dad didn't think about this. He didn't, you know, oh, let me think about this, son. And, and I want, oh, I'm so embarrassed to have a gay son. Uh, how, how am I going to face my fellow GMs and, and all this? It was, it was instantaneous. So it was a great blueprint for family members and parents at that time or in the future. And again, some aren't going to be able to handle it still. But maybe it helped a parent. Maybe it helped the son talk to the parent. Um, although I'm sure some sons and daughters know that their parents wouldn't handle it well, but for, you know, but so that instantaneous support at the time and the juxtaposing his dad's image and then what Miami did kind of made that column, um, obviously challenging and enjoyable to write. It's a celebration of love. It was great. I, I love things like that. And it was hockey related. And then of course, when he dies, then you see his brother, Patrick, 
um, pick up the torch and show his love and loyalty and devotion to his brother, which is a whole other chapter of the story, and his sisters as well, who are, are beautiful women and loving women, just a great family dynamic there. And it's just, I love that brotherly support like that. And, you know, you see it in Irish families, you see it in Italian families. I'm half Irish, half Italian. I, I love that, that, that familia, that family <laughs> is just is awesome. It, it's a teammate, you know, family. That's what I love about sports. What I love about families, you know, your family members, your relatives, your teammates, and they're all kind of, it's the same dynamic. And so, yeah, it all, it was just, you know, amazing, beautiful, tragic, sad, what could have been all kinds of different prongs. And so when Patrick asked me to be a part of You Can Play, and then, yeah, sure, whatever you need. You know, I obviously made contributions from the Bucci T-shirts and the college hockey stuff. And, and, and just the way the NHL players picked up on it, too, again, with the Burke having that respect um, and the way his dad handled it, and then Patrick going out and reaching out to players and doing public service announcements, and from someone like Zidane Char all the way down, for them to have that empathy and that humanity uh, was just, you know, just a wonderful thing. And, and what, you know, the teammates he had at Miami and, and uh, Tommy Wingles and those kids are, were just amazing to me. And it was uh, just a, you know, just an emotional time. It just, I mean, even the wake was so, the wake was amazing. I mean, you know, meeting all the Burke siblings, just the crazy Irish family they are. And Madonna's Like a Prayer is being played at the wake. I'll never oh, forget man, that. Really? <laughs> it was like, oh, I've been to a lot of wakes. I've never heard Madonna before or since. <laughs> it was like, so you know, they, they straddled that, that line of being heartbroken and crushed with also celebrating in the joy that this, you know, that this, uh, that the boy had. And uh, it was just, it was really just, it's, it's, it's life. It was life really in a nutshell, what we all live, what we all experience. And yeah, so writing that really the eulogy column, I guess I would call it. Um, it was really something. It was really a way to look deep in ourselves, look deep into others, try to get better. Like I go, it goes back to self-improving, try to be better this day, forgiving others, forgiving yourself, moving on and taking the next shift and cleaning the ice with the Zamboni. You know, it's all that refreshing renewal, refreshing renewal. And, uh, so, and that story was certainly, you know, one that told it in absolute, you know, the absolute terms and everything was to 10, you know, it's like the old, uh, it goes to 11. You know, it goes to 11. <laughs> and, uh, that's what everything about the Burks goes to 11. And so that's my, so really it's hockey. It's how I like families, big emotional families and hockey that had it all, you know, and, uh, the love, the laughter, the sadness, the tears, the craziness. Again, it's all, it's all in there. Uh, and that's why I think I'm attracted to the sport, attracted to the people who play the sport and love the sport. It's my kind of people. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, we appreciate you and your people for, uh, for coming on the podcast here today. <laughs> I mean, this was, uh, this was so cool. And to end it with a story like that um, is, I mean, it's just so heartwarming. It's so heart-wrenching um, with what happened, but just so heartwarming in the response um, from, like you said, the family and the Miami hockey family and then the greater family of the hockey world, including, you know, a ton of people in the NHL. So um, we hope that that uh, message keeps going across uh, for everybody that's 
that's listening, look into the You Can Play Project. It's a fantastic, fantastic organization and uh, is doing a lot of great things for um, for people in sports that need it. And uh, Bucci, you do a lot of great things for our sport, and we can't thank you enough for coming on here today and sharing your story and your wisdom. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the desk at Sports Center. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> you know, with a crowd around you soon. I know it's a little bit weird with the social isolation yep. right now, but uh, thanks for all you do for the game and thanks for coming on the podcast here today. Oh, you're Brett. I hope you broke it up into five parts. That was kind of long. But I hope <laughs> I didn't bore anybody. I hope I didn't bore anybody. It was a long game. It was a triple overtime win, I hope. And uh, but thank you, boys. It's a great podcast. You do great. You're great for the game. You're another part of the, of the slice that makes the game better. So uh, I'm honored and thanks for having me. All right. Thanks so much.